And dyslexia, while it certainly exists on a neurological level, I think its manifestations in terms of being a, quote, disability is a byproduct of society. The only significant barrier to unleashing the potential of people with dyslexia resides in our insistence on a single modality of education. Don't we not only have an obligation to the individual to harness those different modalities? He said the only thing worse than being lost is being lost and know that nobody's looking for you. Hello and welcome to the Coconut Thinking Podcast. I am your host, Benjamin Freud, and we are in collaboration with Intrepid Ed News. Today's guest is Dean Bergonier. He's the founder and executive dyslexic of Noticeability, which is a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping students with dyslexia identify their unique strengths and build self-esteem. Shaped by the challenges associated with his own dyslexia and wanting to help his son Bodhi, who is also dyslexic, Dean decided to create an after-school strength-based program for students with dyslexia. He partnered with the Harvard Business School and the Harvard School of Education and MIT, among others, and created a middle school level curriculum that helps dyslexic children learn in different ways. Now, this is a different kind of episode, but it's the same kind of episode. I have to say, I don't know all that much about dyslexia. I don't know much about the challenges of dyslexia. I don't know much about the science of dyslexia. So I came to this conversation with an open mind. I met Dean a few days before the interview, and I was so impressed by the way he approached dyslexia from the lens of abundance, not scarcity. It wasn't a question of trying to get children with dyslexia back on track or having to fit in to the existing curriculum or the school day, but rather it was about how we can tap on the strengths that dyslexia brings and open up spaces for children and adults with dyslexia. I was particularly interested with the possibilities that this conversation opened up for learning in general, for our connections to the world from a point of view of abundance. I was curious to ask whether or not understanding dyslexia and teaching dyslexia in different ways would perhaps pull the center from the fringes. That is, perhaps it would show the center those children and adults who don't have dyslexia, how to open up to multimodal ways of learning, ways of demonstrating understanding, ways of connecting with the world, always from an approach of abundance rather than scarcity. It's about thinking of new ways to create spaces for learning, learning from what we've learned about dyslexia. And so from here, this conversation is different, but it's the same because we're talking about opening up spaces for learning and for intra-being with each other. Now, I want to apologize for the quality of the audio. I took my mic and plumped it on Dean's kitchen table in his guest villa, and you might hear some chickens in the background as well as some banging, but I hope you'll understand and leave room as well for the authenticity of just having a conversation face-to-face, which is really nice to be able to do that in 3D nowadays. Check out our website, www.coconut-thinking.design. You'll find resources, articles, podcasts, And subscribe to the podcast. Give it five stars. We always appreciate your support. Again, it's www.coconut-thinking.design and I'll leave space for my conversation with Dean. Hi, Dean. I'm really excited to have you on the show. I heard you speak a couple of days ago. And this is not a topic that we have talked about a lot on the show. It's one 
that you will um, hopefully provide space for and, and, and space in terms of our thinking and practically and, and possibly bring our thinking in different directions and looking at how education could be maybe maybe shifted or channeled in different ways because of some of the stories that you have and some of the knowledge that you have and looking at specifically dyslexia as means of opening up spaces for learning as a whole. So we'll get to these questions, but the first question I'll ask, which is the question we ask all our guests is, who are you and what story do you want to tell? Uh, well, I'm, I'm, I'm totally pumped to be on this. Thank you. I appreciate the opportunity. Uh, my, my name, although it's not who I am, but is Dean Bragonier. Um, part of who I am is the founder and executive dyslexic of a nonprofit organization in the United States called Notice Ability. Uh, I'd say most importantly, who I am is a, uh, a person with dyslexia, is a father of a 15-year-old son with dyslexia, uh, the husband of a wife with dyslexia, the son of a man with dyslexia, son-in-law of a man and a woman who have dyslexia. So I guess who I am is really bound up in this identity as a person with dyslexia. And I say that um, in, 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 from multiple perspectives. Uh, it, has, it has contributed to a significant amount of the pain that I have carried throughout my life. And it is entirely responsible for some of the greatest achievements that I've been able to attain. So uh, it's an existential question, but for the sake of this audience and this argument, I will uh, position myself as, 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 as Dean the dyslexic guy. And so much of this is about identity and the identity that we choose to present ourselves in this moment, which might be different from the next conversation or, or the morrow. The next question we ask all our guests in order to try to get a shared understanding or at least realize that we don't have a shared understanding is, how do you define learning? It's interesting, you know, I had, I had had a chance to learn a little bit about your podcast. And for some reason, I thought that the um, first question out of the gates was, how do you define education? And I was uh, thought about that in the shower this morning, came up with that, and I thought it was a very witty answer. But now that you've changed the word on me, or I misremembered which one you were going to ask, I, I'm going to have to think on the fly. Uh, you know, going to the epiphany I had in the shower, I would say that education, and I was going to ask you for clarification as to whether or not we're talking about sort of the verb or the noun, right? Because education is often um, correlated to educational environments that we call schools, for the most part. Uh, education, I think, in actuality is more of a verb, and it's a it's a it's an opportunity to engage in this learning. So I will weave it back to the original question you asked, which is, you know, learning. I think is on on on. You know, I love I love Maslow, and I'll, I'll refer back to Maslow in a different context. But I love how he sort of um, stratifies uh, different categories. And in this case, I'll again off the cuff, we'll apply it to learning. I think there is a you know, at the bottom of of this of this pyramid is this uh, is this fundamental uh, aspect of being given the tools to learn how to learn. Now, learning is an innate process. We acquire skills. We learn to walk. We learn to speak. We learn to do these things. 
But beyond those rote uh, fundamental uh, aspects of existence, uh, learning, I think, has morphed into this more cerebral, um, uh, wonderful opportunity to, to think outside of our individual needs and start to consider the factors around us and most specifically understand or attempt to understand how we engage in our physical, spiritual, and mental environments. And so learning is, I think, just this, this, this um, you know, oversimplistic term that kind of uh, casts an umbrella over this entire process of refining the human understanding of the world, physical and metaphysical, in which we live. I saw about 12 different exits that I could go on and explore the neighborhoods from that one theme because it's fascinating to me, but I don't want to hijack the interview. Let me pause there and see, see if I should expand or if so, what? But th this is what, what the, how the conversations always go. We start with those two and generally there's a lot of threads from, that we can pull and go in different directions and, and we see what emerges rather than having uh, a piece. And, and when we talked about this, we wanted to bring some of your experiences um, with dyslexia, both your personal experiences, your relational experiences, your, your professional experiences, as means of opening up spaces for learning in different ways. And, and in, your, in your talk, you, you mentioned a lot about how, how there were professions that were um, inordinately um, full, I guess, or disproportionately full of, of, of folks with dyslexia and, and why that might be. And, and maybe there's ways of, of getting folks with dyslexia engaged that, that might be, we, we use the word multimodal and, and, and experiential. I'm, I, I want to go into a little bit about what you said. You brought in the world cerebral, yet you also brought in the experience, which, which is often an embodied experience and also a social experience, learning as, as, as something that we, we are immersed in rather than keeping it in our heads. And so I'm particularly interested in, in how that would connect and trying to segue into this idea of this of, of dyslexia and neurodiversity and 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 how that might play around in some of your insights into what learning what the processes might be in different ways for that diversity. It's I mean it's so interesting. I mean that was that was so eloquently put. And what it did is it momentarily uh, flashed a mirror in front of my face on on how I just answered the previous question. It's so ironic that. Uh, even after 50 years of being a person with dyslexia and, um, and, and learning to navigate uh, learning or education, depending on how you want to define them, uh, you know, <coughs> my, my first reaction is still to go to cerebral as the definition of learning. And that is a byproduct of the environment in which I live. Uh, one of my principle theories is that dyslexia, while it certainly exists on a neurological level, I think its manifestations in terms of being a, quote, disability is a byproduct of society. The reason being is that at some point during our evolution, we decided to make the invisible, which is a spoken word, visible. We had to agree upon a, you know, what sounds these squiggly lines made, and therefore we could transmit 
uh, oral learning into into scribe and into text-based learning. And even to this day, I guess I harbor a bit of a um, an inferiority complex that that modality of education is still so deeply ingrained and it's still a bit of an albatross that I have with me to this day, despite having recognized on a cognitive level that um, the learning that I engage in, the learning that I enjoy the most is of a kinesthetic nature, is an observational nature. Um, and I think that, you know, somewhere along that timeline of human evolution, uh, you know, there was this major disruption as we introduced uh, the written word and we essentially uh, codified instruction that used to happen on an interpersonal nature. Um, if you were a blacksmith, you didn't learn about it from a book. You learned it through an apprenticeship. Uh, and this was how human beings have learned for millennia. And, you know, the, the, the radical shift towards an insistence on a really quite a new technology, the written word in the scope of human history, is, um, is, is, is kind of a strange uh, abrupt and inappropriate monopoly, uh, monopoly on education, right? It's all of a sudden you just hijack the way human beings had learned for 99% of our existence and then inserted a new modality and said, this is the way that you're going to learn. And if you don't learn this way, by the way, you are useless, stupid, or ignorant. And, um, you know, so I say that, thank you for that reflection because I, I, I didn't even realize how much I still equate uh, traditional education with the word learning. Uh, you know, as, as a professional, I, I, I sing a very different tune. I, I focus uh, specifically, as you mentioned, on the emerging neuroscience that highlights the cognitive advantages associated with dyslexia. Now, the disadvantages associated with reading the written word, spelling, etc., is 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 a byproduct is a disability that most are familiar with uh what is so particularly exciting is that the advantages associated with dyslexia are starting to be well documented followed researched and finally paid attention to and you know going back to maslow i i have i have mulled over this question of what the purpose of education is and at least in the United States, it has always been a career path. It has been a series of boxes that one ticks. It's been a series of stratified educational tiers that if you can attain the top, you will be uh, wonderfully filtered into high paying professions in law, medicine, etc. cetera. Uh, you know, I have questioned that assumption as I learn more about how education is structured, uh, discover some of its dirty secrets, and also juxtapose that against what I see as the 21st century economy. And what's ironic is that so many of those professions, the ones that a generation or two aspired to pursue, have now been a victim of 
either globalization, artificial intelligence, or codification or automation, right? We have a company called LegalZoom, right? Which, you know, why pay somebody $800 an hour when you can pay $39 and get the same boilerplate legal agreement? It's, uh, it's not eliminated the legal profession, but it's certainly take a, taken, a, taken a, a chunk out of their business model. Um, you know, there, there's a, a ravenous investment into, uh, you know, machinery, uh, uh, new uh, innovations in medicine that essentially eliminate the human error in surgery. So you all of a sudden have to question whether or not education is still this viable pathway towards a profession or if education should be revisited in terms of purpose and why. I have come to conclude, going back to Maslow, that education is now serving as a stepping stone towards self-actualization. And what I mean by that is that what a person, I think, strives for more than anything else, once they have those fundamental needs, shelter, food, protection, they aspire to be of value to those around them, to themselves, and to be sought after for their expertise, whatever that expertise may be. And I think that education has lost its way. Education, I'm doing, I'm speaking to the institutional term, education has lost its way, or at least failed to be nimble enough to pivot and address the demands of an emerging marketplace that have essentially said, if we can codify it, we will. So where the real value is going to lie is interpersonal relationships, creativity, and innovation. And as clever as AI can become, there is no greater innovator than the human brain. And what I find particularly exciting is that if we can enable students with dyslexia to understand that their brain construction is literally suited for a 21st century economy and that the traditional modality of instruction being the written word is very quickly being replaced through different modalities such as video or audio or graphic or pictorial, uh, that it is not only leveling the playing field, but I think is actually allowing people with dyslexia to, to regain some of the lost traction that they once had prior to the advent of the written word. So I know I'm going all over the place, but 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 this is um, you know this is a is is a is is a very wonderfully and complex web of interconnected um, factors and considerations that span not only the individual but society and 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 you know the marketplace that keeps our our, our civilizations running right. But I'll pause and sip my coffee. No, I am. I'm, I'm. I'm fascinated by this, and, and specifically, I'm gonna. I'm gonna just just um, kind of resist on a couple of things, and this for the interest of, of not being in an echo chamber. And the resistance will come um, just just to just to challenge and, and see what what the responses are in terms of Maslow and what probably was never was never really written in terms of his theory, which is about beyond self actualization is the collective actualization, mm-hmm. how we we're going to be those 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 connected beings. And also wanting to get your, your response on, on this idea of moving outside of our heads, as you mentioned, not for the marketplace, but for 
a different kind of civilization, one where we're more connected to each other, really connected to each other, one where we recognize our place as nature, not separate from nature or not even connected with nature, moving away from the narrative of preparing education, preparing for the economy, and seeing whether, whether we can reframe dyslexia, as you mentioned, and I'm, and I'm thinking aloud here, but you, you mentioned that it's seen as a disability, but, but the abundance that's involved there in terms of the diversity, diversity among humans and the way they think and act and feel, just like there's diversity in nature, and how that might open up spaces. But seeing, seeing what we can learn beyond preparing for the marketplace and looking at a different way for us to interact on a civilizational level. Well, you know, it's, 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 as you and I were explaining, as I, as we were speaking before we started this, you know, I am, I am, um, I'm certainly disenfranchised is a nice word, uh, about the capitalism that I witness in the West. Uh, it is, I think in many ways, um, responsible for tremendous advancement, but unfortunately responsible for almost a equally, if not disproportionately, uh, large impact on the separation of the individual as well as the human uh, sort of society from its original uh, natural inhabitant, uh, habitation. You know, I, I, I you know, it's it's common to to overly romanticize um, the societies of, of, of indigenous cultures. But uh, in the United States, there's, there's, there's nobody I respect more than, than the Native American uh, community. They, they have demonstrated uh, historically until, until, until we, we messed it all up, they have demonstrated that level of harmony where not only can human beings exist and thrive, but uh, their interaction with nature is balanced and measured so that uh, that profound respect for the interconnected nature of all living beings, including, uh, you know, plants and, and, and all organic matter for that, nature, for that, for that matter, uh, there was this profound respect and, and most specifically rooted in a level of restraint and, and right-sizedness. And, you know, I'm so inadvertently impacted by the capitalist society that I grew up in. Um, and it's often, it's often difficult uh, to remember that societies that, that, that came before ours um, did a wonderful job of not messing things up. We came in in the last few hundred years and, and did an extraordinary job of exploiting uh, for, for, for net profit, um, all these uh, resources that, that were so wonderfully maintained prior to, to our evolution. And I, I, I mean, I say it with, with shame because I have inadvertently, as being a member of the American society, contributed to it in some ways. But, um, you know, it does, it does, and I love this, this conversation because you've really, you've really, you know, you've gone from, from, from first gear to fifth gear quickly, and I respect that, uh, is, is, you know, what is, I guess we could discuss what is, what is the why, what is the end goal behind um, civilization, and, and, and that's the only term I can come up with, but what I mean is an inclusive sort of, uh, you know, Gaia-type theory on, on our existence, and yeah, it seems that it seems that 
for one reason or another, and I'm Buddhist and, and, and I've got my, my Buddhist theories and then I've got my quasi-Western Buddhist theories on why the ego exists. But I think if you're going to pinpoint anything as the, uh, the, the fundamental flaw, the, uh, you know, the, the Shakespearean flaw, it is that emergence or that fostering of the individual ego. And nobody does it better than the United States. Nobody. I mean, it is, it is the essence of the city and the hill idea that we can create a nation of individuals whose fate is directly related to their own personal investment and output. Um, but it's, you know, it, it, it saddens me uh, because I think that over the arc of human history, we are seeing this exploitation at an exponential rate. And because we've become so good at what we do, uh, you know, we are, we, are, we are not only burning bridges, but we're destroying all of the foundations on where they land. So it's not just a bridge that you can't go over, but there's nothing to land on at the end of the non-existent bridge. And it's just terrifying to me because it's our children and their children that are going to have to deal with the ramifications. And, you know, I, I, who doesn't love an old National Geographic from the 70s? But you flip open that magazine from the 70s and all of the warning signs are already being rolled out in the 70s about overfishing, exploitation, etc. And this idea that we've been able to stick our head in the sand for 50, 60, 70 years now is terrifying. And I don't know what is going to be powerful enough to allow both the individual and society at large to stare down the collective ego and say, you know, we need to learn how to sacrifice. We need to learn how to be altruistic and think about other living entities besides ourselves. And I can get very pessimistic, in all honesty. I can get very, very pessimistic. And I think that dovetails why I've chosen to pursue the work that I have. Not only because working with students with dyslexia, introducing them to the cognitive advantages, seeing increases in their self-esteem, their academic tenacity, and an increased stigma consciousness, this is rewarding for me as an instructor and a teacher, it's obviously, I, I presume it's rewarding for the student themselves, but this is the only way that I can make a viable investment into a future that I see as pretty damn bleak. Because over human history, there has emerged a common theme of some of the greatest innovators and change agents of all time being people with dyslexia. So you look back at everybody from Einstein to Edison to Henry Ford, and you see individuals who have fundamentally impacted the way our society operates. And because that correlation between what they've achieved in their dyslexia is now being proven out on a neuroscientific level, I look at this population as a highly investable gamble on a brighter future. Current Statistics show that a vast majority of these individuals will wind up involved in drug and alcohol abuse, incarceration, school attrition, etc. And that's largely because they're trying to, you know, so to speak, exist as a left-handed person in a right-handed person's world. And because they can't exist successfully in that world, mostly in the text-based educational system, they conclude that they're deficient and stupid and useless. But the irony is that the 
disparate outcomes between the same population, within the same population, indicates to me that there is an opportunity cost to society. And let's say, I want to, society, I want to expand that. I'm trying to think of a, a, a sort of a human interaction with nature, sort of the big picture ethos, right? I have to think that the person who will solve global warming, who will come up with a sustainable energy source, who will think of an uh, of a of, of a way to address uh, economic disparity in the global sort of economic scene, uh, has to be a person with these creative skill sets, and so. Dyslexics, I believe, are this population that we can identify, unfortunately, mostly through their disability, but then poor, this undivided, unadulterated attention and support into knowing that they have a higher likelihood of seeing solutions than most others. And 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 before it sounds like um pontificating and being biased towards dyslexics. You know, a woman named Dr. Uh, Helen Taylor out of the UK just released a brilliant article, uh, paper on what she calls complementary cognitions. And this looks back historically and actually supports exactly what I'm saying, which is that there are exploitative and explorative minds throughout history and those that go out and find new resources and then those that come in and exploit those resources. And it turns out that over historical uh, sort of scope that those explorative minds, those that find new research, discover new paths and solutions, have been predominantly those with neurodiversity and specifically dyslexia. The neurotypical, and I don't mean to be disparaging against somebody who doesn't have a learning difference, but the neurotypical tend to be more exploitative, meaning they are the uh, agricultural-based drivers in our societies. And so I look at this and I think if the only significant barrier to unleashing the potential of people with dyslexia resides in our insistence on a single modality of education, yet we have such a broad spectrum of modalities of instruction now, thanks to technological advancements, don't we not only have an obligation to the individual to harness those different modalities and translate quote unquote learning into organic styles that each learning profile can resonate with, but also society at large, I think is desperate for a solution. It's like standing on an oil field and paying to keep that oil beneath the ground. I don't shouldn't use a fossil fuel as an example, but I think you understand the point. It just makes no sense to be incarcerating or putting change agents in drug and alcohol rehabs when we could have them brightening our future and steering the ship. And this is the part that I find absolutely fascinating because it's an approach or, or an invitation or a demand or of waving a flag saying these multimodal ways of going through learning experiences allow us to tap the energy rather than the oil um, in, um, from, uh, from, from, from where, where we were not, we're confining it. And I think of when I started as a teacher, 
uh, I, I worked in a school with a uh, significant amount of, uh, of students with dyslexia, and I was told you need to give them a certain font, you put the paper on a certain way. That's such a scarcity approach, isn't it? It's, it's, we're going to give you certain um, ways to kind of get you through it, but really it, it doesn't come from a place of abundance, which is, okay, well, maybe this might not be a direction, but, but this, the, all these other ways can be. I can't help but thinking that this does translate, should translate, must translate into everyone, no matter what it is. So even this idea of neurodiversity and, and, um, and um, uh, you know, neurotypical, it still keeps us in neuro. I wonder if there is a way that we can think about it in, in getting out of our heads and thinking more in terms of the, the connections that we have. And, and maybe, I don't know, I was thinking before what the word might be. I don't want to say cardiodiverse because that just sounds ridiculous. But, but, but maybe teleodiverse, teleo being the purpose, like the different purposes that we have and, 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 and playing that from abundance. And maybe what you're talking about with dyslexia can pull the rest towards the saying, this is what we need to thrive, these multimodal ways of just allowing everyone to come from abundance rather than scarcity. Uh, it's uh, you know it's fantastic. It's it's a fantastic question slash statement that you've just made, and I agree with it entirely. And you know that, you know, I you talk about different fonts or different colored papers, et cetera, et cetera. And 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 you know, as a professional, I applaud these measures because they're first steps in the right direction. Uh, I then encourage people to think beyond those those simple measures um and you you want to you want to reward progressive thinking with applause as opposed to criticism but it's it's it it, it indicates that there are people that have adopted a willingness to think or at least to crack the door into thinking differently about how we educate our our our, our children and ourselves um you know the you know i the reason I adore working with people with dyslexia is not only because I am one of them, but because um, they they are traditionally looked at as the most difficult to engage. They are the hardest to reach. They are the easiest to write off. And I think, you know, may it be because of my dyslexia and always having to do things the hard way by default, uh, or or maybe it's just the challenge itself, but I, I, I love the opportunity to prove that the most difficult task is not only possible, but is actually really fruitful. And then it makes that lower hanging fruit seem almost um, uh, 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 inexcusable not to pluck and to embrace. And so, you know, when you talk about, uh, you know, neurodiversity or what was it? Tell Teleodiversity. I just made it up. I don't know. Give me the definition again. Teleo being purpose. Yes, purpose diversity. So I think you should coin that. I think you should wrap <laughs> up the URL right now. Um, but that goes, you know, that segues back, I think, into what Maslow is talking about, right? Which is like, you know, you, you look at you look at the gentleman who is uh, who is picking up trash and throwing it into the municipal uh you know, garbage, garbage trucks, you know, every morning in the United States. And you think to yourself, perhaps that person didn't, you know, didn't achieve what they wanted to educationally. And that, or chances are that Billy, the guy who's there every morning and who everybody talks to and who is, you know, peers look up to, 
is arguably one of the most self-actualized human beings in the world. I mean, he is respected for what he does. He is an absolute pivotal member of society. Without him, we would all break down. And and to to look at the richness of our sense of accomplishment and, and not labeling what accomplishment is worthy of adoration. I mean, you only have to look at the United States to see how not to do it. If you exploit developing nations and exploit natural resources, you get paid in abundance. And if you actually care about the future and teach children, you get paid almost minimum wage. I mean, so don't look to the United States as an example. But if we can start to recognize that, 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 that I think the true pursuit is not necessarily the American ideal of what we term success, what we call success, but is in fact that going back to that Native American uh, sort of ethos where if you are able to contribute in your way to the betterment of the communal health and functionality, you are heralded and valued. And I think it is a fundamental human characteristic to want to be included in the tribe. We want to be a valued member. And there's nothing, and there's a gentleman, and I'm forgetting his name, wonderful guy, works in inner city youth down in Florida. He said, the only thing worse than being lost is being lost and know that nobody's looking for you. And that, that, that idea of being untethered, that idea of not having purpose, and, and I include myself for much of my life because we as dyslexics tend to be late bloomers. We find our purpose, it seems anecdotally, later in life than most, is a terrifying place to be. And I think that when we are able to find what our purpose is, and, 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 and there's, there's great stories, and I won't unless you want me to tell you, I won't bore your audience with it, but there are great stories about dyslexics that have been on a path towards um, whatever the opposite of self-actualization is, despair, loneliness, and who have gotten a ounce, a droplet of positive affirmation from somebody who they didn't expect to get it from. And that has literally proved out to change the trajectory of their lives. And so I, I just look at this opportunity to be of fulfillment, to, to, to be of service to others as being at least one of my principal drives. Um, but I, I can't help but to think, you know, the, the, there isn't as much agency in nature as there is in humans, right? I mean, the, the chicken outside our door right now isn't coming and telling me what he deserves. So we have to project a certain level of intellectual um, assumption on how to take care of nature because nature can't speak up for itself per se unless it gets really angry and then huge amounts of people die because, you know, tsunamis crush society, etc. But the idea is that I think we need to take that ability to find purpose. We need to take our ability to find agency and find a way to contribute and extend that beyond just human society. Otherwise, the whole equation is absolutely untenable. We're going to, we're going to meet a premature fate if we don't start thinking about um, the greater good.
wow, you're, uh, you're, you're, you're opening up wormholes and I'm diving into them. I hope your editing skills are good enough to get rid of some of <laughs> no, I think it's fantastic. I'm, uh, I'm also, uh, I'll, I'll leave it open to the last question, which is a little bit the et cetera section, but I won't make it so much of an et cetera section because I want to hear more about how you're moving around the world and specifically connecting the yeah. world uh, in, in your work. Um, you know, we have developed a series of courses that focus on the cognitive advantages of dyslexia. We've contextualized those in the professions where dyslexics are disproportionately successful. We deliver those courses using different modalities of learning other than text. And most specifically, we focus on social emotional development in the students that we serve. We, we, I say we because I'm really speaking about my son. He was the one that provided me with the inspiration. He was with a friend of mine and his children and our friend was batting these balls up into the air. And he said to the group of six-year-olds, whoever catches this one gets all the marbles, right? Typical American expression. My six-year-old son heard marbles as being a valuable commodity. And so he started obsessively collecting these things. Now, it got to the point where Bodie had accumulated literally thousands of marbles and a guest would come over and he'd fill up his pockets and the other 99, uh, you know, would, would spill out all over the floor. So he said, Bodie, we got to figure out a way to transport your marbles. Again, this is a dyslexic kid. He said, all right, and we thought about it for a little while. And, and then he said, Dad, you know what we're going to do is this. You know, those, those, those magnet balls, those really high-octane high little magnet balls. I'm going to have mom knit, not knit, but stitch together some fabric to create a pocket. And then I'm going to glue these little magnet balls inside that pocket. And then what I'm going to be able to do is take another pair of magnets and I'm going to be able to put them on the inside of my shirt and I'll be able to attach this new pocket on the outside of my shirt and I'll be able to have external pockets so I can pack my marbles around. And I saw this and not only did I think it was absolutely brilliant in terms of innovative thinking, but what I did immediately was I got onto a government website that allows you to fill in the blank in order to produce a business plan. And I sat with Bodhi, again, six, maybe seven years old, and I asked him all these questions and filled out this business plan. And I printed it out and I dropped in front of the seven-year-old this 45-page paper. I said, Bodhi, you've just created your first business plan at seven years old. And I looked at this kid and he looked at me with these big, beautiful blue eyes. And I saw that he felt as if King Kong was a little pest. He was at the top of his world. And I recognized at that moment that that level of confidence could never be taken away from him. And it was correlated to his dyslexic ingenuity. And I was quick to articulate that correlation. And so as a result, he has his struggles like every dyslexic does, but he's also really cognizant of what he does well. And this portfolio of courses that essentially replicate the story that I just told you uh, was very quickly adopted by international partners that I had never met who expressed interest in bringing our programs to their countries. But as you can tell, I'm American. Uh, my style of entrepreneurship is American. So we encouraged our partners to translate all of our videos into native tongue, but also to incorporate cultural nuances so that the Dutch would resonate with our entrepreneurship model. They wouldn't have to adopt an American one. Uh, fast forward 
we, after being adopted in about 30 countries, I said, we really have an obligation to uh, build some diplomatic bridges. Uh, it should come as no surprise that um, the uh, preceding administration in the White House prior to Biden, uh, Lowe's, uh, I was sickened by what Trump did to our, to our, to our international reputation. And I thought it was due time that we do our small part in contributing to rebuilding the American image through our very modest contribution. And so a handful of our donors agreed that disseminating our program entirely for free and not only disseminating it, but putting our boots on the ground so that we can build trust and we can build partnerships and we can help students no matter what gender, ethnicity, race they may be, nationality, would actually be a really wonderful way of identifying that dyslexics are a global community and a significant one at that, arguably 20% of the global community. And so they funded us to go around the world for 18 months and visit 18 countries and do exactly that. And if you wanted hope for the future, I would invite you to pack your bag and join us on this journey because when you sit across from people who have what I say the gift of desperation, it's not my term, it's, it's a familiar term in certain circles, but when you are so desperate as many students with dyslexia are and somebody has created something that may be a lifeline of sorts, the response is, Gratitude, appreciation, collaboration. And for me to marinate in a world where people donate to my organization and they give me a check and they say thank you to me doesn't make sense. It's not the way it works normally. And then I give through their generosity our programs to other communities and they turn and say thank you. The commodity that I operate in is gratitude. And if you ever want to see reason to believe in the human population, focus on gratitude. And there is a, there is a, there is glimmer. There is a glimmer of hope for our future because at the end of the day, despite these nasty, ridiculous egos that we maintain, there is a fundamental tie that brings us all together. And I don't want to go any more on the soapbox of my sort of religious or philosophical views, but we're not that different. None of us are. I think we're all just kind of fractions of the same divine concept. What's the best way to get a hold of you if people want to get a hold of you and if you want them to get a hold of you? Yes, we, we, we would love as much love as we can get. Uh, notice ability. You can also go to no disability. Dot org will um, allow people to explore what we've created. We are, like I said, in a position right now, limited in duration, but uh, ready to share for free what we've created. Um, but more importantly, I think that if any of this touches upon either a dyslexic ear or a non-dyslexic ear, my only hope is that people will understand that when you approach an individual and you challenge yourself to seek out what they are good at, 
what they bring to you, you will see that there is an extraordinary wealth that each individual has to offer and that faster we can start to recognize the good in others and what they can contribute to our society or even to our individual relationships. Uh, I think the sooner we'll recognize that we all have a, a responsibility to think more collaboratively on a global level, on a spiritual level, on a physical, economic level. Um, and that's and 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 if 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 we've at least generated that conversation, we've we've we've, we've succeeded today. Thank you. Thank you. This has been the Coconut Thinking Podcast. Thank you for listening. Check out our website www.coconut-thinking.design. You'll find articles, links to websites that we find interesting, podcast episodes, and also check out Intrepid Ed www.intrepidednews.com. Again, our website is www.coconut-thinking.design and. Hope to hear from you soon. Bye-bye.